Thanks, guys. Real quick business update before we look at the scriptures together. Um, we like to notify you kind of where things stand with the church and keep you informed. Uh, we give giving information on the back of the bulletin. Giving is a part of worship uh, in the way we see the Christian life, and so it's a response to Jesus giving to us. Uh, so we don't pass a plate, and we're not going to twist your arm to give. We just want to keep you updated and say, this is what we budgeted. These are the funds that we think we need to do the ministry that God's called us to in the city. Um, so we're a little bit behind for this year, so I want to remind you of that. If you're a follower of Jesus, I um, would in- invite you to partner with us in giving. But I also want to define a- another way of giving that is really important to us, and it's especially important this time of year, and that is serving, um, serving with your time. So giving is giving financially, but serving is another way of giving. It's, it's giving your time and your talents and your skills uh, to serve in the ministries of the church. Particularly, we're facing a big PCS season. Um, we're, this is our 13th year as a church. So I just want to let you know it's going to be okay, but a lot of people are going to move away. Okay, I don't know if you know that about Fort Hood, but it's just a little more than normal this year. And so just want to invite those of you that are kind of new-ish, or maybe you've been around for a while but haven't had a chance to jump in and start serving in some place particularly the nursery, we need to get more folks involved there. And that's an opportunity for you to grow in your own faith. Um, As you begin to serve others in Jesus' name, that helps you to grow as a disciple. So I just want to challenge you to step up and get involved in that particular area of need that we have in the nursery area. I've got some thumbs up, some nursery folks out there like, yeah, it's awesome. It's a good and beautiful thing. I want to invite you to try that. You can email nursery at begrace.org or the office office at begrace.org to get more information about that. Um, So now we're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together. We're in a series in the book of John. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up your Bible to John. If you don't have a Bible, we've put some under the chairs. Uh, I want to get you in the habit of, of opening a Bible and checking it out. And so Go ahead and open that black Bible if you don't have another one and turn to John chapter 9. It can be found around page 895. John, uh, the fourth gospel, chapter 9, page 895. And we're going to be looking again at Jesus. We believe that all of Scripture speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself, but particularly there's this kind of focus when you're looking at the gospels that are written about Jesus, his life, his work, his death, his resurrection, the details of his ministry. And so we've really enjoyed this as we've been going through John, getting to know Jesus. This week, we're seeing that Jesus is the eye-opener. Jesus is the eye-opener. Typically, if you've been here before, you know I, I, I try to kind of set the stage with the story that kind of sets um, the theme of the Scripture. This week, I'm just going to read the story of what Jesus does because that's the model of this chapter. The model is Jesus does something which then becomes a living illustration for something more that Jesus has come to do. So we're going to see Jesus physically open someone's eyes, but don't miss this. What he's trying to help you to understand is that you have a need more than just physical eyesight. We all have a spiritual blindness that keeps us from seeing the true God, that keeps us from seeing our spiritual separation from him because of our sin. So please don't miss the bigger point that Jesus is trying to make. He's going to open the eyes of a blind man, but in that process he's saying, you need me to open your spiritual eyes. You need to see the truth. So let's look at the story starting in chapter 9, verse 1. He says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, rabbi or teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. 
As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light. He's the one that gives us sight. He's our only hope. As we move through the rest of the text this morning, we're going to see that there are different things that can blind us from our spiritual need. Our cultural assumptions, right? Kind of just the way we were brought up give us a view of reality that makes it hard for us to see the truth. Religious traditions. You might be a very religious person and there's a great warning that Jesus gives again and again when he's talking to the religious leaders that sometimes your great traditional religion can actually keep you from seeing Jesus. And then finally he's going to talk about the just personal willful stubbornness in our own hearts. Sometimes we just blind ourselves. We just cover our eyes and say, God, I don't want to see what you're doing. So let me pray for us that the Spirit would meet us here and and open our eyes to what Jesus wants us to see. Let me pray. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are calling us to yourself. Thank you that you are the one that opens eyes. We pray that your Spirit would meet us here. Help us, strengthen us. Give us uh, the courage to look at you, to see the truth. And we pray that you would transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we need Jesus to open our eyes, and we need him to open our eyes because we've got cultural assumptions that get in the way of seeing the truth. We've got traditional religion that sometimes get in the way of seeing the truth, and then our own self. Like sometimes we just cover our own eyes to what Jesus has to say to us. So the first thing we want to look at is the cultural assumptions. What are the cultural assumptions that can blind us? Sociologists sometimes call these plausibility structures. And what that means is if you've taken Psychology 101, you know that when human beings expect to see something, if it's halfway there, they'll see the thing they expected to see. There's all kinds of psychological tests that have been done there. We see what we want to see. We see what we think we're going to see. And it's really dangerous for those of you that are really logical thinkers, right? Um, Because if you're not really very logical, you have a certain humility about you that makes you more open-minded. The danger is when you think you're a good thinker, right? Then you're like, I know, I'm good at thinking. I'm better than everybody else. And then it sneaks up on you, right? And so there are these cultural assumptions that make it hard for us to fit what what God is trying to tell us that doesn't fit through the hole. There was a toy that my kids played with. I think I even played with it back in the 70s. My kids played with it. I'm sure there's one still in the nursery. I'm going to show you a picture of it here. Uh, This toy, I don't even know what it's called, but it's like this sphere with different shaped holes. And you've got like a star-shaped hole and a square-shaped hole and a circle-shaped hole. And then you have the different pieces that fit in the right hole, right? And it's a a way to make babies learn what fits where and they push it through. Um, But certain shapes don't fit in the holes, right? And so there are these cultural assumptions that don't allow certain truth to go through our brain, right? There's this hole and we're like, nope, doesn't fit. I'm not going to allow it into my brain. Can't go there. What's the cultural assumption that, that Jesus hits on at the very beginning of the story? It's the part that I already read. It's a cultural assumption that if someone is sick, there's a direct line to their sin. That it is revenge that God is taking because of the sin they committed. Or perhaps, if they want to distance themselves a little bit, they might say, or the sin of their parents, right? So this man was born blind, and the cultural assumption of the disciples, they're like, well, there are only two choices, right? Did you see that in the text? Jesus we're smart enough to know there are two, two, two choices. They think they're really open-minded, right? Like, not just his sin. It could be the parent's sin too, right? She's like, no, it's not either one. It's not either one. So I want to ask you, do you see suffering in that way? Every time there's suffering in your life, is it a sin that you committed last week? Every time you're sick, is it your sin? Or maybe it was your parent's sin. Is God trying to get revenge on you because of that sin? 
Now, we have to be very careful, right? Because the Bible does connect the dots between sin and suffering. Those dots do connect. They're just not always a direct connection between me and my suffering. Sometimes the suffering in the world is something I experience, and it's not because I sinned today that I experience the suffering tomorrow. It's because sin going all the way back to Adam and Eve. The world is broken. Romans 5 talks about like death came through sin. So we live in a world of death and suffering. It's a world of disease. It's a world of brokenness. And so we can kind of connect it back to sin. It just is not always like God exacting revenge on the sin that was committed last week, right? So now let's look at what Jesus says. So I gave you the kind of bigger picture of the way the Bible frames it through Romans 5 and, and Genesis. You see this as well, but But Jesus says something more specific. What does Jesus say? So verse 2, his disciples were like, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? He was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God had a purpose to show his work in the context of this man's brokenness. And that's really hard. I actually kind of had a debate with some of my staff this week um, because I tend to not say God made him blind, right? Like I just tend to not say that. But, but the Bible in a lot of places is okay saying that. Like the sickness, the disability, the suffering that you have. In a lot of places in Scripture, the Scripture is like, no, God, God did that. In other places, it's like the devil did that, right? Or sin and suffering did that. And so it's, it's a confusing subject. And I just want to th- say, first of all, I know that this is confusing. I can't really do it justice in like one subpoint of a sermon, right? I'm not doing the whole sermon on this because there's more that Jesus wants us to see here. But I want you to see this, this little truth that I hope that can be helpful for you. Jesus is saying sometimes your suffering can be an opportunity for God to display his power and his glory and to work in your life. We see that also in the Apostle Paul. He says, I pleaded with God to remove this thorn from my flesh. And Paul even says... Satan was, was a part of that, right? Evil was a part of that. Somehow God was sovereign over it. And God said, no, my power is enough for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My power will be perfected through your weakness. And so that's a tension that we have to be really careful. Like I'm, I'm nervous even just not giving an hour to this, right? And, and I'm happy to talk more because I, I know a lot of you have suffered in particular ways and this is a really hard subject. Um, but one of the little bumper sticker lines that, that I find helpful is in celebrate recovery in that ministry. They say, God never wastes a hurt. There's a sense in which God hates the evil and suffering in our life. God uh, is working in history to make all things new. We know the future we're looking forward to is a future where he'll wipe away every tear, every pain. But there's also a sense in which he's, he's working through that. He's like reversing it for his glory. He's using our suffering and our pain somehow to, to make things good and, and true and beautiful. So again, this is a, this is a big subject. We're not doing it justice. Uh, another place to look is Genesis 50, the very end of Genesis. Joseph was mistreated by his brothers, abused by his brothers. And when their dad died, the brothers thought Joseph was going to kill them. And he had every right to. They came to him and they're like, hey, uh, we think maybe dad doesn't want you to kill us. It's kind of a really comical setup. Like, <laughs> Right before he died, dad said, hey, don't let Joseph kill you. You know, they're like kind of making up a story. It was just kind of bizarre. Joseph was like, what you meant for evil, he's not letting him off the hook. What you meant for evil, this really was evil, God meant for good. 
And that's, that's the mystery of God's sovereignty, right? Somehow God is sovereign over the evil. Evil is still evil, and the evil people that do the evil things are still responsible for it. One more example of this is Peter's preaching in, in the book of Acts. The most evil thing that ever happened was Jesus was nailed to a cross. And Peter says that God foreordained that. And so we, we struggled to know how to put all these pieces together. What helps me the most is not that God is sovereign over all of it. What helps me the most is that Jesus came and met me in my suffering. That's what personally helps me the most. I think both things are helpful to different people at different times. But what's made the biggest difference in my life is Jesus met me there. So when I'm, when I'm struggling with my suffering, I don't tend to go to God's sovereignty as much as I go to Jesus loves me. He's transforming this. He's meeting me in the suffering and he's taking me somewhere new. And so go back to verse one. This is talking about Jesus. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Go and, and study this on your own time, but just go look up all the times that Jesus saw and looked. And it's a beautiful picture of love. So an application for us is, do you see people in their suffering? Do you go and meet them there the way that Jesus does? And do you know that Jesus sees you in your suffering and he's coming and he's, he's meeting you there in your pain and in your suffering? That, that's what's more helpful to me. I, I have friends who are like, no, God's sovereignty is control over all of us. And I, I think we're just different people. Different truths are helpful to them in different ways. But for me, Jesus, Jesus seeing my suffering and Jesus meeting me there makes all the difference in my day-to-day suffering and pain. And so we see this picture of Jesus seeing their hurt and not saying this is because of their sin, but seeing them as people made in the image of God. Seeing them as people with dignity, right? Not seeing them as like lesser than or the other or outsiders, but this is a person who deserves dignity, honoring them. Do you see people who suffer in that way? Or do you tend to think, ah, they don't have their life together as, as well as I do. I think another thing that we see is just our, our own need to trust God in the midst of our suffering. To trust God in the midst of our suffering. Um, Job, really long book. Um, the whole thing that Job is about, Job never really figures out why, right? He doesn't really figure out, but he has a confrontation with God and that changes everything. And so sometimes just knowing God is with you is going to transform you. I think it's also helpful to know that God is taking us somewhere new, but sometimes just knowing God is with you is going to transform your circumstances. So do you see people suffering? Do you understand? And do you meet them there? The way that Jesus describes this meeting people and their suffering is he says the works of God, right? He says, it wasn't because this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 4, look at verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So what's really cool is Jesus is kind of flipping back and forth between the I and the we. Do you notice that? He's like, guys, we got to do something about this. We have to do the works of God. Throughout John, it's very Jesus-centered, right? I, I, I. It's very much focused on Jesus and who Jesus is. That's what we've called the series. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the light of the world. He is the one that opens people's eyes. And he's saying... Yeah, and in the midst of that, come on, guys, we need to do the work that God sent me to do. And so we're a part of that we. I hope you see that. The application for us is, is we're a part of that we, that, that work that has to be done. That, that's us too. We've got to join him in his work. Do you see the suffering around you? 
Sometimes we live our lives, we construct our lives in such a way that the suffering can't upset us. I just want to encourage you to pray about that. Lord, give me eyes to see the suffering that's around me. And if I've constructed my life in such an insulated way that I don't have any, you know, touch with suffering, help me to open new doors, right? Move me, maybe. What does it look like for me to be around more suffering and to see it and to do the works of God in the midst? So what are the cultural assumptions that you may have? Their cultural assumption was, this is this guy's fault or it's his parents' fault, you know, and just they're the bad people, they're the outsiders. No, Jesus sees them as someone with dignity that needs to be helped and served and loved and seen and known. So the next thing that we see that can be a struggle for us is our religious traditions. They can blind us as well. Our religious traditions, the, the religious traditions of the Pharisees, of the Jewish leaders, this was something that, that became an issue again and again and again, okay? And so this is not my hobby horse. This is Jesus' hobby horse, right? He's always coming up against the religious traditions of the Pharisees. So look at verse 6. Having said these things, Jesus, it says, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Can we pause there for a moment, moment and just be honest with each other that this is odd, right? Can we be honest? Is that okay? This is a little weird. Jesus grabs some dirt, spits in it, makes mud. Why is Jesus doing this? A couple of things I've heard as I've researched this. One is there was an old wives' tale that spit had healing properties, right? So you think people go overboard with essential oils, you know, these days. Well, at this time, they thought spit could heal anything, right? And so here, he's kind of doing something that's an old wives' tale of the day. But it's interesting, later on, uh, you know, the guys will say, well, yeah, but nobody's actually ever healed a blind man before. So he tends to be using something that's, that has questionable use, right, um, to maybe show his power. He's using something that's never really worked in their society. Historians will say, yeah, a lot of people thought spit could heal people, but it didn't actually ever heal anybody, right? Which you would say, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's true, right? When you're, you ever have a kid with a cut and you're like, let me spit on it, honey, you know, like is that, yeah, we don't, we don't really do that. Um, here's what I think is the real deal. Here's what I think is this, this is what this is really about. It's about religious tradition because there was a commandment that said we are to keep the Sabbath day, the rest day, holy. We're to take a day to just rest and worship Jesus and trust him to keep the universe spinning. That's, that's, what the ten, that's my paraphrase of the Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments say just take, take time to rest and trust God, okay? Do that every week. Trust God, rest. And then the Pharisees added religious traditions to that and said this is how you must do it. And what we want to see is that all religious people do that. Me, you, we all have a tendency to add layers to God's law and say, this is God's law, and then my preference, my tradition is how you must do it. So it's not that traditions are bad, it's this traditions are slippery, right? Traditionalism is bad when you confuse traditions with God's law, with God's word. They're two different things. A tradition can be a great carrier for God's word, right? You can use a tradition in your home. Here's an evangelical tradition that I think is a great one. A lot of us talk about having a daily quiet time. This is a great one. I think it's a good tradition. You should try it. Setting aside time in the morning, reading the scriptures, praying, meeting God. Um, but there's no verse that says set aside 30 minutes. It's got to be at 6 a.m. You've got to read this many passages. You've got to pray for this long, right? Like that's just... That's just a tradition of meeting this concept in Scripture that we need to meet with God 
we need to know his word, right? So there's a principle of knowing his word, and then there's a tradition of the daily quiet time that you spend. And, and so traditions can be great, but don't confuse them with, with God's law. I used to joke about a sillier tradition. We used to have really ugly pink carpet in here, and I would say, back when we had the ugly pink carpet, when you go find a new church, don't look for another church with, with ugly pink carpet, right? Look for a church that preaches the Bible. Um, we have worship services at 9 a.m. and at 1045. Again, when, you, when God calls you to another city, don't go finding a church that meets at 9 and 1045. That's not the important thing, right? That's a circumstance. That's a preference. That's a tradition. That's not the same thing as the word. And so just recognize this is a, a thing we all fall into. We all have this issue, no matter what our traditions are, whether they're good traditions or terrible traditions, we tend to confuse them with the word of God. Okay, so I spent a lot of time on that. And their, their particular tradition was... It's a violation of the Sabbath to make mud. It's a violation of the Sabbath to make mud. Like that was written down. They all knew it. They all knew it. They had all agreed to it. So, so why do you think Jesus decides to make mud? He is, he is firing right at their tradition. Do you think Jesus could have healed them without the mud, without the spit? Yeah, we know that. We've seen all these other stories. There are plenty of times Jesus healed people without rubbing spit in their face, Okay. He's purposefully digging at their tradition. I think it's very obvious from the text and from the way Jesus has been operating. So he made mud. And you're going to see it as a literary theme too because it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep coming up again and again as we unfold the story. So he anointed his eyes with mud. Verse 7, he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. He's the scent one. And he says, go wash in the pool called scent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had been Seen him, uh, who had seen him before begging as a beggar, were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it's he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So, so again, this is, this is kind of going back to the first point, the cultural assumptions. They're like, well, of course it can't be him because this guy sees and the other guy couldn't see, so it's got to be a different guy, right? So it's making it impossible for them to see the truth. And he's like, no, it's me. It's really me. I'm telling you. He, he gave me sight. Verse 10. So they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. So the Pharisees are the, the leaders, the teachers of these traditions. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So, so some of them are, are questioning, and it says, and there was a division among them. So some of them are starting to see the truth. But the majority is saying, no, if he doesn't agree with our tradition, he can't, he can't be the truth. Others are like, but he's, but he's healing people. Like, but, but these signs, these, these seem to be significant. Verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet, right? God, God must be at work in him. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? 
His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents are like, we're, we're staying out of it, right? <laughs> this is sometimes called willful blindness or willful ignorance, right? You turn from something you don't really want to know because you know it'll get you in trouble. They know that this religious tradition is going to bite them, right? Look at verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Synagogue is just the word for gathering, the fellowship, right? Like what today we would call church. They would be kicked out of the fellowship. They couldn't be a part of them anymore. They were fearful. The religious tradition said Jesus can't be the Christ. We've refused to accept him. And if anybody does, we're kicking them out. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. And so there's an interesting pivot here, right? We see the religious tradition blinding the religious people, right? The religious tradition is is blinding the religious people. It's making it hard for them to see truth. One of my favorite illustrations of of weird traditions is uh, the old story of a girl who was trying to learn how to cook a roast, and she was learning from her mom, and she was watching how her mom did it, and taking notes and her mom would always cut the roast in a certain way and you know prep the pan in different ways and she asked her mom now why why do you cut the roast like that and her mom was like well I I mean I don't know this is just how my mom did it and she was like okay and you know they finished making the roast and it tasted good and it was great and they enjoyed it but she still was curious and so next time she saw grandma she asked grandma why why do you cut the roast that way and grandma was like well I I never had a big enough pan so I had to cut the roast to fit in my pan. And so now her daughter has a big pan with plenty of room for a full roast, but she's still cutting the roast because this tradition that hadn't been passed down. And that's sometimes what traditions are like. As I said, there can be good traditions and bad traditions. We're not about being anti-traditional here. We're just saying the point of the, tr- the tradition is to be a carrier of the truth. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. We need to constantly be doing the work to recognize the religious traditions we've inherited and say, God, is this from you? God, is this work for now? Does this help my family to love you? Does this help us to obey you? Does this honor Jesus? Or is this a tradition? Maybe it's, it's time is over. So again, we don't want to be anti-tradition people. We just want to always be pro-Jesus people, right? Jesus first, tradition second. And if the tradition supports Jesus, great. And sometimes circumstances can change. Right? Cutting the roast doesn't make sense anymore if you have a bigger pot. Sometimes the tradition was for a certain time and a certain place. Sometimes the tradition's great and keep enjoying it. Uh, Christmas. Christmas is a tradition our family loves. And we've kind of built some of our own traditions. We've kind of inherited traditions, right? But you know what? Christmas is not in the Bible, people. Did you know that? It's not in the Bible. So it's a way that we worship Jesus, but it's not a commanded thing in the Bible, right? It's just a tradition we've inherited. We enjoy it. We try to redeem it and make it Jesus-centered as much as possible. There's a lot of traditions like that, that they're fine, they're good. Just don't allow them to blind you from who Jesus is. The Pharisees wouldn't allow themselves to see Jesus because he was violating their tradition. And then there's this really cool pivot. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, it says, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Do you see that? This is another cool example of of the opposite, of someone breaking free of their tradition and saying, 
I'm not going to allow the tradition to, to blind me or bind me or hold me back. I'm just going to testify to what I've seen. And I think sometimes we can, we can be intimidated by tradition, right? Um, maybe you have family members that are really strong, that really have their stuff together, and it intimidates you, and it makes you think, well, maybe I don't have anything to say. Maybe I don't have gifts or skills that can be used by God to impact others. And this blind man is this beautiful example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to testify to his works, right? He's just kind of stumbling along with this humble boldness. He's like, well, I don't know all the answers. I mean, this is an uneducated man, right? He's been a beggar his whole life. He's been blind his whole life, and he just testifies to what he knows. And, And I want you to see that as an example of how we should live our lives. We don't have to have it all figured out. We can just testify to the simple things that Jesus has done in our life. Like, I don't I don't know all the answers. I'm not sure if I can solve for you the problems of evil and theodicy and God's sovereignty and these philosophical things, but I know Jesus has met me in my suffering. We can just testify to the simple truth of who he is. That's a beautiful example here. We see this contrast, right? We've got religious leaders that don't get it and this untrained beggar who gets it. He's the example that we should be following. So don't let your tradition blind you, number one, to your need for Jesus, like the religious people typically do, right? If, if you grew up religious and you grew up in a conservative home where things were done well and in order, there's, there's great blessing in that, right? That provides safety, security, order. Thank God for that, but don't let those blessings keep you from seeing your need because all people are still spiritually needy. Romans 1.19 talks about pagan people, rebellious people, and their blindness. They see that God exists and they turn from it. And they become more and more blind, right? And then Romans 2.19 shifts and shows us that, you know what? Even religious people are blind as well. And so we see that beginning to happen here. We see this issue of religion blinding us. There's a quote I want to read from Rosemary Miller real quick says this, the gospel was not my working theology. Mine was moralism and legalism, a religion of duty and self-control through human willpower. The goal was self-justification, not the justification of faith in Christ that the gospel offers. But as many people can tell you, moralism and legalism can pass for Christianity, at least outwardly, in the good times. Uh, moralism and legalism can look like real Christianity. Religious traditionalism can look like real Christianity as long as everything's working in your life. But what about when things fall apart? She goes on and she says, it's only when crises come that you find there is no foundation on which to stand. And crises are what God used to reveal my heart's true need for him. And so again, we see this idea that that these bad things can actually be a blessing that wake us up to our blindness and our need for Jesus. Don't allow traditions to keep you from seeing your need. And don't allow traditions to keep you, keep you from offering the gifts, the, the vision that you have of Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, if he's showed up, if he's met you and you're suffering, share that, right? The feeding of the 5,000, the little boy offers his loaves and fishes. That's not enough to feed 5,000, but he offers what he has. But that's what we should do as followers of Jesus. We serve, we offer, we give what we have. And we don't allow tradition to intimidate us, to make us feel like we don't have anything to offer. Be bold yet humble. All right, the last 
concept, the last blindness problem is just us blinding ourselves. The first two were kind of external, you know, cultural assumptions. Well, it's always a sin issue when someone's sick. And the other one was religious tradition. They just couldn't see Jesus as a truth teller because of their traditions of how to keep the Sabbath. And this final one is how we blind our own selves. So let's pick up in verse 26. It says, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? So they keep going over the mud thing again. He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. That's a really key part here. He now is, is calling them on it. He's like, we, we keep going over this, and, and you refuse to listen. You're willfully blinding yourself. You will not listen, he says. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I think he's, he's like, jabbing him here, right? Verse 28, they reviled him. It's like they insulted him, saying, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Isn't this great? This uneducated man is picking up on this thing we would call literary irony. The people that think they're so smart and have it all figured out can't see. He's like, this is amazing. You say you can see? He opened my eyes and you can't see him? You can't see what's happening here? Verse 31, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. They're like, how dare you? You're a beggar. You don't know anything, right? They don't see him as being made in the image of God. They don't see him as having human dignity or having now even sight. They're like, how dare you? They kick him out. They cast him out of the fellowship. Um, here we see, again, this unwillingness to admit the truth Overused illustration, but I think it's a helpful one, is from The Matrix, a movie that came out, I don't know, like 50 years ago now. Um, <laughs> it's a sci-fi movie where there's this idea that reality is kind of veiled, it's kind of a fake reality, right? People are captives and don't really know the truth. And so there's this pivotal scene where Morpheus offers Neo, great names, right? Morpheus offers Neo a red pill and a blue pill. And he's like, one you'll get to just go back to normal life and not know the truth. Just the bliss of ignorance. The other, you'll know the truth, and it'll be hard. It's like, which choice will you make? In the story, we see clearly the Pharisees saying, no, we, we want to be blind. As I said, a great, a great cross-reference to this is in Romans 1, Romans 1, 2, and 3. Paul builds the case. Romans 1, 19, pagans blind themselves through their rebellion. Romans 2, 19, it says religious people call themselves guides for the blind, but they aren't. And Paul says both non-religious people and religious people have the same problem. And what we do is we, we start maybe with some external blindness, some excuse, but we make it worse and worse. We, we blind ourselves. We get deeper and deeper. It becomes harder and harder to see the truth because we're, we're blinding ourselves. But again, the the blind man then becomes the model for us. He becomes the model of what we're supposed to be like. We see this model and, and every time in the Gospels that a blind man is healed, every time it's contrasted with the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders. 
This is just another one of those stories. He's the example of actually seeing the truth. Look at verse 35. We'll wrap up here. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You've seen him, and it's he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Here this is like, how dare you? Are you implying that we're blind? Verse 41, Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. That's the sin, right? It's denying the blindness. And so that's my challenge for us this morning. Are, are we in a place where we admit our blindness where we admit our need for Jesus to open our eyes. It's summarized in 1 John 1, 8 and 9 by saying there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who lie about their sin and then there are those who confess it and say, Jesus, heal me. I'm blind. I need your sacrificial death. I need your resurrection life. Will you open my eyes? Will you, will you heal me? Again, the story about a physical healing is so that Jesus can help us to see our need for spiritual healing, our need to have our, our eyes opened. Jesus says in Matthew 9, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick, right? So to be a Jesus follower is to be someone who admits, I'm sick, Jesus, I need your help. And again, we want to be clear that if, if you grew up in, a, in like a really healthy family or with a really strong religious tradition, that can be a huge blessing. That can be a huge blessing. Just don't keep it, don't let it keep you from seeing the truth. Don't, don't let it get in the way of seeing your spiritual blindness, that we all need Jesus to open our eyes. We all need Jesus to set us free. Uh, the thing that we look forward to in the end, the permanent healing of having our eyes fully opened is, is referenced in, in 1 Corinthians 13 and in 1 John 3, a couple of different places where it gives the idea that those who know Jesus will one day see him fully, face to face. We look forward to that, that day, the vision that, that Revelation talks about where, where every tear will be wiped away. Someday, all the suffering, all the sickness will be done, will be won. The question is, are you willing to ask him to open your eyes? Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us, that you invite us to see. And God, forgive us for the times we close our eyes. Forgive us for the times that we, we go outside and we see you in creation and then we deny that you're there. Forgive us for the times that we pretend that we are guides for the blind because we have it together and there's something special about us rather than confessing our need for you to open our eyes. We pray that you'd set us free from pride, set us free from willful blindness, help us to see your grace and your goodness. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.